Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. Oh, and I'm Pete Wright, and I'm so excited for our street clothes runway today. <laughs> today we're talking about Minute 93, which begins with Big and Green and Buckass Nude, and ends with Clint needing to level out. Back on the show, it's Matthew Fox. Hello, Matthew. Hey, everybody. Glad to be back. We're continuing our conversation between Bruce and uh, Harry Dean Stanton, the old security guard here. My first question, because this minute starts off with, you know, the security guard saying he saw the whole thing right through the ceiling, big and green and buck-ass nude. Does that mean the clothes, like, ripped off of Hulk as he was falling? Like, I, I guess suddenly I don't know what was going on in the sky. Wow, you're right. Like re-entry burn? <laughs> what when he hit the atmosphere somehow? <laughs> so the helicarrier wasn't that high. Right. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a good point. Like because as I think about it, yeah, we established that like he 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 has figured out some kind of like super elastic pants. You know, the kind that like, you wear to Thanksgiving because your belly's gonna expand an inch mm-hmm. or two. <laughs> right. At least I do. Yeah, like they they make a point to keep pants on him because or else it would be hard to keep a PG thirteen rating to these movies, and so having him become buck ass naked, you know, I think they know what audience they're serving. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any plot explanation for it whatsoever, except that when it comes to an old man saying words like buck ass naked to be funny, Harry Dean Stanton is very good at that role. The other thing that I was thinking here is that we have Banner. This is an order op- order of operations exploration, right? Banner said he put a bullet in his mouth and the other guy spit it out. That implies to me that he put the gun in his mouth and fired as he was Bruce, but quick changed just in the amount of time that the bullet could come out of the muzzle into Hulk and spit the bullet out. So I, if we take that as table stakes, having him fall out of the helicarrier as Hulk, transform down to Bruce as Hulk, all his clothes fall off him because as he shrinks, his underwear and his pants become like parachute material and they are whisked (laughs) off of his tiny body. But then Hulk comes up and really fast changes back into green for impact and then he changes back into Bruce as he passes out. Order of operations. That is a lot of work. (laughs) <laughs> that is, yeah, no, I had to. I'm not saying it's easy. That would be Harry D. Stanton. First you were little, and then you were big, and then you were little, and then you were big. That's a deleted scene we don't get, which is unfortunate. I would like to see that scene. Well, you just, you look like a twinkle light in the sky. Y'all are reminding me why I love reading, but hated English class. Like, that's the, like, and I think I just kind of trying to eviscerate the whole movie, movie minute idea. That's not what I mean at all. I think there's a level of consistency that that even by today's movies, we are now starting to get that when they made this movie, I don't think they were ready for it to be picked apart to this level. Because you're right, it it does not make sense. There there are three or four inconsistencies that happen somewhere along that journey from sky to ground. 
it all and you know we've talked about this a lot there are so many elements within this script that feel incredibly written just to get these characters to where they need to be for particular moments and this just feels like another written moment just as you said the comedy of having harry dean stand say big and green and buck-ass nude like it makes no sense hulk would have the clothes on bruce wouldn't have the clothes on or theoretically what should have happened hulk would have fallen hit the ground passed out shrunk down to bruce bruce would be laying there in in his stretchy pants that would have shrunk down with him or if they weren't the stretchy pants they would have he would have shrunk down but still have like the shell of ripped pants on him and so there never would have actually been a buck-ass nude and so that's it ends up just being written just for comedy is really what we're left here oh okay look you guys are talking as if you didn't even hear my Hulk quick change argument. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. it's like not even there because remember balloon or parachute pants, literal <laughs> parachute pants in the sky. <laughs> but again, I think Harry Dean Stanton, uh, you know, artist of two hundred and seven screen appearances, as we learned yesterday, <laughs> does not lie to us. He did not say you went, you switch back and forth and back and forth. He just said, "Son, you've got a condition," right? <laughs> Which is perfect. Well, and he didn't see, he says, uh, which, you know, it's funny, you shrunk down to a regular size fella. Like, there's this debate that he has. Are you a big guy that's, this is in the extended elements here, but are you a big guy that gets little or are you a little guy that sometimes blows up really big? And so it's kind of funny, like, he he kind of sees that there's this, I don't know, this this side to Bruce where he is this person who's changing back and forth. And he says, you know, I didn't, I have these extra clothes here, but I didn't think they'd fit you until you shrunk down. And so it, it just, yeah, it seems like he probably... Were they Harry Dean Stanton's clothes? Do you think they're Harry Dean Stanton's? Because they still look a little big, even for And Bruce, Harry Bruce Dean Banner Stanton. is not a small ma- man. No. He's compared to Hulk, but he... And again, I agree, I would say it is primarily for comedy. But and I will not take us back on the thirst train of yesterday. But I will just point <laughs> out if there is any doubt that that is at least a part of what the the uh, cinematographic gra- decisions that are being made later in this minute during what Pete described as the Andy Warhol art house direction part. We do get a long lingering shot of Jer- Jeremy Renner's muscles as they are bulging while he is fighting against the cuff that's holding his arm in place. That shot is not necessary unless someone understands the visual appeal of that particular kind of shot, which again tells me that they do it for the humor, but the fact that it also means that we get to have Mark Ruffalo without the clothing on that he should have is not an insignificant part of the choices being made here. I think there's an easy element in the comics to kind of handle all this sort of stuff but there's also the reality like when you're putting it into a movie with real people and stuff you have to kind of create these situations to to you know get through these moments and you know they do what they need to in order to make all of this work Look, it is purely for plot reasons that natalie portman's shirt gets ripped in the way it does in attack of the clones you know that is just (laughs) purely for the plot exactly (laughs) totally totally for the plot i i do think it's funny just going back to like harry dean stan's comments about him shrinking i think it's probably a good thing that he actually assumed hulk was going to shrink down because he brought these clothes here and he said well i didn't think they'd fit until you shrunk down which means that he saw hulk land and go unconscious and was laying there for a while he's like well i guess i'll bring clothes in case he shrinks it's kind of a a funny thing to think that he's like assuming he's going to shrink wait a minute you guys maybe 
that's the line that supports my theory that he watched oh, him boy. grow and shrink and grow and shrink. And now he knows he's going to shrink down <laughs> to a regular fella because he saw the Christmas light, twinkle light Hulk in the sky. I'm not going to let this go. Let's go. Dog with a bone right here. I, I do think it also raises a question that once again happens at the speed of plot for what's needed, which is how much does the rest of the world in general know about who these people are? And it is well documented that the Battle of Harlem was on national and international news. So I'm thinking presumably that the security guard at least has some, you know, particularly if they're in the New York area, some memory of when the news story about this guy who turns really big and then gets really small and then and vice versa. So, so there's probably some context of reference he's using. That that fits with the cut as we have it, because if he knew that this is a person who turns big and is big and green and asks him, are you an alien from outer space? Like, that makes sense, because this is some I've seen you on the news, but I want to know, are you an alien? But it doesn't necessarily line up with it, the extended scene, because that's where he's like, are you a big guy that gets a little or a little guy that sometimes blows up large? You know, now he's like really trying to figure out, like, I've never seen this before. So what are you? Um, so I, I maybe that's one of the reasons that they cut some of this stuff. What do you two think of this this whole extended sequence between and this conversation between Bruce and the security guard, which really plays into like Bruce's concerns about being a part of the team, I suppose. I love it. I absolutely love this deleted scene. And this is this is one of the few deleted scenes where not only do I wonder why they didn't finish it, I, I think that they made a mistake cutting this out. The movie is already long, and this extended scene adds, what, 60 seconds? And yet, he is the wandering wise man, right, That Harry Dean Stanton. And I think giving him a chance to poke these questions uh, in, in just a slightly more thorough manner for Banner is important. And it makes that character's decisions make more sense right and i love the line you already made up your mind you're you're already made up your mind your body will follow is a great idea for bruce banner uh so i i miss that that this isn't in the in the film proper i think a little bit of it is would have been helpful especially the like bruce getting to verbalize his concerns and the one or two lines that uh stanton gives him in response it then felt like the rest of it was very on the nose. I don't know, it just felt very cliche. Like, not even cliche, I use that word too often, but just very cheesy, almost, in terms of, like, ABC will after, ABC will after school special kind of thing. Like, I'm very glad, and I, I'm happy to defer to the idea that, that Pete probably speaks more for, for film-growing audiences than I do. But to me, at least, it, it was a nice idea, but I found the execution of it fairly weak. Well, you know, I can see there's definitely a point to be made from both of your perspectives when Bruce says things like, I know where I could do the most good, but it's where I can do the most harm. That does feel written very much after school special like. But at the same time, th it is a moment where we are actually getting to really see this internal conflict that Bruce is having, right. which we haven't had because up to this up to the this point in the film, like his whole thing was, hey, I'm here just to help you read the gamma to find the tesseract i'm not a part of the team i'm just doing this one thing and then i'm out and so this is that point where he's we're kind of having a moment of conflict within him where he's like do i go in and fight knowing that i can harm people but at the same time i potentially could also help people and i think maybe they cut it because it is kind of written a little poorly a little on the nose 
but I do, to your point, Pete, feel there's value in a scene like this having been in here. And it's frustrating that it um, they crafted it a little poorly because I, I really like what the concept here. Yes. And, and I think that's where I land. And that's why I like I, I, I want to say I, I agree with you. It feels after school, especially just the way it is written. But it, it feels unfinished to me. And that's that's the ultimate point. Like, I feel like they cut this too soon and it makes it feel just like a joke. Right. The way it, it it's just a bit for comedy. And what we have with the intention of the extended part of this sequence is it takes it from comedy to meaning. And that's important. Right. Like that is a, I think that's good for Banner and it's good for Banner as a as part of the emotional setup for his. That's my secret. I'm always angry that we're going to see, you know, soon enough. So I, I think this 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 one feels misguided. Like, I think you definitely have me convinced that the emotional weight that this scene is attempting to convey is something that the movie would have been a lot better if it had in it. I, I'm not sure this scene is the way to go, but yeah, I think if you rewrote it, particularly because I do think that audiences a lot of the time, and I think myself included, until I really kind of went back and, and paid a lot more attention, we can miss just how significant the moment that you're talking about I'm Always Angry is. Because as far as I know... That is the first time, at least in the on-screen versions, that Banner has intentionally chosen to become Hulk because he sees value in there being Hulk. And I think that that is an incredibly powerful moment in his journey that is kind of lost. And on the one hand, I think you're right, Pete, that like having something like this in there would help. On the other hand, I think this is the, the, the problem of an entourage movie like this. You know, often there is kind of like... Birds of Prey, I keep bringing up DC, is another one of my favorite movies. But in many ways, it's not an entourage movie. It is a Harley Quinn movie with some other characters who have much more contracted character arcs. I think there's a way to make Bruce Banner's journey the emotional heart and center of this movie. I think there's also a way to make Tony's journey, or to make Cap's journey, or to make Thor's journey, or to make... uh Black Widow and Hawkeye and their kind of relationship together and that the main journey. I don't know. I think clearly they decided there was no, no possibility for that. So well, exactly. <laughs> uh, instead, I think we do. The movie is trying to give all of those characters a character arc, and some I think it lands really well, and others we get Thor for five seconds alone in a field. You know, and I think this this thing with Banner, it may be that it would have been more sat. This scene would have been more satisfying if there had been other scenes as well that kind of make Banner's story the really heart and center of this movie. But I think then that takes away from everything else they're trying to do. Well, and I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And I almost feel like they, they learned this lesson that, you know what, we can get the bang of an entourage movie with the central character heart by doing movies like Captain America Civil War, by, by doing Captain America the Winter Soldier, where we're introducing other heroes and we have other heroes, but it really is one central character's story. And, and so, you know, there, I think there's room for that. This, it, it is hard. And I don't want to, I like making the decisions they made to make the movie that they did here. I applaud most of them. I just find, I yearn a little bit for more here, especially because Hulk has had such a a history yeah. in film. Yeah, so that's frustrating. Heavy air quotes. Am I right? This was the first time Mark Ruffalo had played Banner? This is, yeah. By now we think of him as just locked into that role, but I wonder if also there was some thought of 
because this wasn't Ed Norton, and let alone there had been like a couple of other Hulk movies that had come before that, I wonder if there was some concern about making him too much the center of the movie when a lot of the audience was just getting used to the idea that this was Banner. Well, I think the trade-off there is that they did they not give him enough, right? Yeah. Like, he's not the center of the movie, clearly, but also do we walk away feeling like he's a little bit anemic? He's a plot tool. I don't know exactly what the specificity of the the deal between Universal and Paramount at the time of this, but there was still um, a control issue as far as how much Hulk they could actually put into the film oh, um, right, right. because it was a different studio that had the rights and still has the rights to the character. I mean, I'm understanding that's still part of that plus the Ruffalo of it, I think is part of why, you know, Cap has all of his own movies. Tony has his own movies. Thor has his own movies. Black Widow has at least one of her own movies. Not enough. Uh, even Fury basically got to be a major part of one movie all to himself with Captain Marvel. Hulk hasn't had. He's only been in ensemble pieces since then. I think probably his biggest role was in Thor Ragnarok where he's still very much like a secondary character. And yeah, the degree to which that is that they don't think Hulk is interesting enough compared to the Ruffalo of it, compared to, as you say, Andy, that with, with all the attention brought to Sony, uh, uh, Sony being part of Disney now, I don't think Hulk was included in the same way that the X-Men and Spider-Men were. Yeah, because it's, it's a totally different studio. That's Universal. And so mm, yeah. that's that's the, the the constant issue there, the reason that he still has no other feature other than The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. But yeah, I I mean, I've heard buzz that at some point they're trying to figure out how to do a Planet Hulk story. and But that would, again, require them to buckle down and work with Universal to kind of put that thing together. So I don't know. I'm curious to see what they're going to do, because as we know... Betty is coming back. We have Tim Blake Nelson coming back as the leader. And so we have some of these characters that they've introduced. So that's the thing is like, I don't know, like with Sony, it's like they had Spider-Man and certain characters that they had the rights to. And I don't know in the line of Universal, is it Hulk and the family of characters or is it just Hulk? And And so it's easier for them to put Betty and the leader into other things. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I've definitely heard some rumors that he will be in a big part of Secret Invasion, and certainly um, spoilers for She-Hulk uh, for the next thirty seconds. The some of the scenes in She-Hulk, especially the after credits, seem to indicate that he is getting very involved with the people who Secret Invasion is going to be about. But you yeah, know, right. So knows? we'll see. We'll see how that all plays. Yeah. Well, let's shift our conversation away from uh, from Bruce and the security guard down in this abandoned warehouse in Jersey. Jump back up to the helicarrier into the sick bay in particular, because now we're jumping into, as Pete said, Pop Art Warhol um, Hawkeye story. This is Clint in the sick bay. Talk about a crazy decision to jump into an interesting color treatment here to kind of portray Hawkeye's uh, work, his like mental struggle to get out from under the mindstone control uh i mean what how does this work does this does this play well you know <laughs> i mean i don't love it i think it's kind of, it makes for it, it's it's hard because i i'm in the bag for renner like i like jeremy renner a lot and yes. i i i like the the fact that he's like, I like the idea that he is struggling here and he's flexing and clearly things are challenging for him in his head and why they made it all pink and purple and high key. I don't know. I, it is a very strange treatment for this kind of 
psychological, physiological experience that that he's going through here. I, I don't I don't quite get it. It it feels like a drug trip and not a mm-hmm. yeah. It's like first vibe. person, but we're not first person. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't love it either, especially because to me, the question of sort of, you know, deprogramming from, you know, a cult or from like, you know, having only learned facts and history and ideas from one very particular point of view, and now you're kind of struggling to come to terms with reality. Like, that's a very real story that people can relate to. And granted, this is supposed to be a supernatural reason for it, but it's still an interesting, connectable story. And so the more they do to kind of make it like sci-fi and and like mental waves that we don't really understand, I, I would rather just see it as two people talking. Because um, I think you can still get just as much of the emotional power from, you know, the fact that Natasha sees who Barton really is. You know, she's the one who is most connected to him. To me, their relationship is, I think, perhaps the one in the movie that I'm the most interested in particularly because they they create this idea that a man and a woman can be incredibly close work, not just work friends, but friends without necessarily having to be a romantic aspect to it, but that they know each other so intimately. Again, not in a romantic sense, but just that that word still has meaning. You know, she, he has seen her at her worst. He has seen the red in her ledger. And now she has seen him at his worst. I think there's an important metaphor there of the, we don't know the Black Widow movie yet, but we do know that, you know, she was raised as a child to be this this spy. I think there's very much supposed to be a parallel there, that the way Loki took control of him and the way the organization that raised her took control of her is very similar. And that he could help with her deprogramming and now she can help with his. And to me, the the crazy lights of it all kind of takes away from that. Yeah, and we'll certainly get into a lot of that tomorrow as this conversation between the two of them continues. Because, I mean, we, we will touch on a lot of those very specific points that you just mentioned. And that's what makes me think, Andy, like it feels like this was an, a decision made in haste in the editing bay, right? Like it's just such a weird treatment for such a short bit of film to go with this this level of sort of filtering. Yeah. Especially when it's not like they shy away from using Dutch angles and such as the conversation continues and he levels out in subsequent minutes. Like, it's not like they change how they use the camera. This really is a, it feels like a filter. The other thing that I, I question with this is like, he's not the only person that Loki had under control. Eric also was under control. So does that mean... When Eric comes to on the roof, that he's going through this same, like, you know, hallucinatory multicolor trip that Hawkeye is going through here. Cause clearly, I mean, Clint is seriously struggling. Like he's, he's fighting the, the restraints and everything. Like it's, I mean, he really is like, I've got no window. I have to flush him out. It's like, I mean, it sounds really serious. And then to think that Eric is doing this by himself on on the roof of a really tall building, which seems really unsafe when you think about it. It just kind of like, I feel like they are making it a really big moment here just because it happens to be Clint and he is under the care of Natasha at this particular moment. And it just ends up feeling like, I don't know, the whole thing ends up feeling like so artificial the way that they've chosen to craft this. I think it's a really hard moment because I think you're right. For this moment to land, you have to either, A, do it with Selvig when he kind of comes back, but also maybe with the moment that, like, Renner and some of the others get controlled. 
But I feel like if you do it, like, I think that would turn into a Scooby-Doo movie, you know, the kind of uh, kind of aspect of it all that would just appear so cheesy as to take away the power of it. So, but here's the thing. And again, maybe this is my not being a film person to begin with. I've probably watched Avengers four or five times by now. If you had said to me before I did this rewatch for this purpose, oh, were you really bothered by the purple lights in the Barton scene? I would have said, what? Like I, it, it, it was <laughs> yeah, just like, right. oh, yeah, Barton's coming to there's a weird effect they use that just goes right over my head. I think unless you're always sitting down with a popcorn in your lap to do that kind of very deep level analysis, I don't think it occurs to you very often, or at least not to me. Um, but I do think when I actually stop and look at it, it's like, eh, we, we didn't need this scene. It's interesting. I feel like we have said that so much over the course of this series so far, Pete, where it's just like they are really skirting by on the hopes that audiences are just eating popcorn and laughing yeah, and glossing and over everything. Because I feel like every other minute features something that it's just like, eh, let's not worry about that. Eh, let's not worry about that. Well, but to me, this is the flip side of what we talked about with Thor, where to me, Avengers is a great movie. If I stop and look at it, there's a lot of weird stuff happening. Thor, I thought, was a perfectly mediocre, not very interesting movie. And then when I stop and look at it in depth, it's Shakespeare. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's all these incredible moments that I forget because everyone's wandering around in tights and in a city in the sky. So it, it doesn't even kind of cut both ways. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, uh, let's save the rest of our conversation with these two for tomorrow's minute, because we'll certainly have a lot of this conversation to dig into. So before we leave, though, I did have one last question about that extended scene, because I forgot to ask you both as people who have been to the New York, New Jersey area in that extended scene, we actually get them walking out of the warehouse and we see across the shore to me what looks like. New York City from like the like you'd see on one of those points like Liberty State Park or Exchange Place or something. One of those famous places where you go in New Jersey to get that fantastic view of that Manhattan skyline. Is that where that is? And, uh, you know, my my hunch is that because this is an unfinished scene, they probably just threw that in there as a temporary backdrop. But if it is and if they were intending that, then that really does mean that the helicarrier had been hovering over New York City. Yeah, I think so. Am I, or am I just completely wrong on my, uh, as I look at that, uh, that cityscape? Well, I mean, there is no end of warehousing <laughs> along the, like, the Jersey City kind of waterfront. Like, from Jersey City, what's up there, Hoboken? Like, it is just all, it, it's just all, like, warehouse and paper mill. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but like, of... if you've seen um, Ms. Marvel, I think it reminds you that it's all incredibly yeah. busy, though. It's, like, honestly, until you said this is in Jersey, and then they said it here, I thought this was, like, in Iowa or Nebraska. Or, <laughs> and I remember watching the movie the first time, being like, wow, Hulk gets back real fast. Uh, well, and, th this and, is the biggest problem, Matthew, because you brought it up. Like, this is a weirdo, like, unused warehouse, and in order to have that view of like what Staten Island Park, right? It's or not Staten Island Park. What what is the the main park down there? Like in order to have that view, you have to be in an incredibly expensive part of like wherever we are, Jersey City, Hoboken, whatever. And as well as and this might be my New York City snobbishness coming out for which I apologize. The Stanton character, the security guard has always struck me as like 
very small town, you know, country bumpkin, you know, but like with a great deal of wisdom to him of the kind of like, aw, shucks, I guess I heard about you once. If he is actually in the New York City metropolitan area, which is 50 miles into Jersey and most of Connecticut, if we're being honest, I think he has seen far more on the news. And I think his interaction with Hulk makes a lot, you know, and, and granted, especially when this movie was made, we were we were in a time when you would get great shots of the New York City skyline with mountains in the background because they were filming in Vancouver instead of New York. And people <laughs> thought, why not have mountains in the background in New York City, even though it makes no sense. So as a New Yorker, I've kind of seen every single movie that tries to say it's set in the New York area get it completely wrong. So this wasn't noteworthy to me. But yeah, there's there's nothing about this that tells me as a New Yorker, oh yeah, the way, you know, like Stark Tower... I know exactly where that is. That is one block east of Grand Central Station in an area like around 42nd Street on the mid-east side. Like that is positioned in a way that I know every part of the Battle of, New- of Manhattan that happens in the later part of this movie, I can, t- I can point to on a street-by-street map and tell you exactly where it is. This, not so much. Well, again, it's unfinished, so who really knows? I, I, I'm honestly glad it's not here because then it really kind of <laughs> makes makes Thor's you know giant field in the middle of nowhere seem uh, like really far fetched. So, but see, but the thing is, Thor, Thor, Thor sorry, <laughs> sorry, Thor, I don't mean it. That Thor can fly, right? Like that's that's not a problem. The fact that that we put Bruce Banner in a in a shipyard in New Jersey with the view right. In across, what is he looking across, Chelsea? Like, the fact that we put Bruce there, it's far, but on a motorcycle, it's doable, depending on time of day, right? Like, right. <laughs> it's not like it's inconceivable that he's going to make it there while the sun's still up, and Thor can fly. He could be in freaking Perth Amboy and make it in no time. Like, it's fine. It It's because he's flying. So I that actually is pretty, that's believable to me. I don't have a problem with any of that. Yeah, the only reason that I I have issues is because if when Fury said, put the sun on the left, that means they're flying south. That means they were flying right over Manhattan. And that means all of these pieces of the helicarrier had already been falling on the city before any of the Battle of New York began. Because by the time Hulk and Thor both fall out, they have to be across the bay over New Jersey. Again, why are they going over land at that point instead of just out over the water? Like that, it just makes no sense. If if they're looking to get over water, they're either going direct, I mean, really, wherever they are, they should just be going east. Why, he says, put the sun on the left makes zero sense. Well, especially because the helicarrier doesn't take off from a land base. It, they start, I believe, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when the ship first takes flight. Why did they go over the United States to begin with? Yeah, they've been all yes. over the place. Yeah, it's, it's they've been all over very the place. logical. But theoretically, they're over Bermuda at one point. <laughs> they're actually Fury is just trying to draw a GPS penis. Like that's his big there thing. There is, like he just wants people to see. And I'm the one the who's dirty on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just like Jeremy Renner's <sighs> bicep muscles. That's, all. that's right. That's right. So sweaty. That's right. All right. Well, let's uh, draw this minute to a close. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow to talk about minute 94 with you, Matthew. Remind everybody again about the podcast that you're doing. Yeah, um, I'm The Ethical Panda. I do superhero ethics and the Star Wars Universe podcast. If you go to theethicalpanda.com, both of those uh, you'll find. You'll also find that will probably redirect by then to True Story FM and my own page there because I'm joining the True Story FM network. Most importantly there, though, you can find all the ways to contact me. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, email. Uh, we get a lot of feedback. We're getting ready to do a feedback episode specifically for Star Wars. 
uh, with so much new content that's been coming out, new content that's being talked about. So yeah, please check all of that out. And uh, I'm really excited to be part of True Story FM and to be podcasting on both those channels. We're thrilled to have you. And uh, so thank you so much for joining us here today. We really appreciate it. And uh, Pete, thanks as always. Andy, we start the clock. How soon before Renner's in his Pop Art Warhol state does he get to fly an actual aircraft? Uh, We shall see. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. <laughs>